Hello everyone, welcome back, or welcome to those that are new. Today's episode you'll be hearing from myself, Ariana Aronson, my lovely co-editor, Grace Fluherty, and a special guest. Hi everyone, this is Grace Fluherty. I'm super excited about this week's episode, and I'm excited to be hosting with you, Ariana. (laughs) Just a quick shout out to Grace, as she does a lot of the -the behind-the-scenes work that many don't see. So it's exciting to have you hosting today. Today, we have a very important episode. We cover a lot of news around grounds and within the Charlottesville community, as many of you may know. But today's episode not only ties in the local aspect, but applies the topic to a larger scale. As I'm sure you all know, February is Black History Month. Black History Month actually started as Black History Week and was established by Carter G. Woodson in 1926 and later evolved to be Black History Month by the late 1960s. According to the Digital Humanities at the University of Virginia, quote, Woodson was instrumental in bringing professional recognition to the study of African-American history during a period when most historians held the opinion that African-Americans were a people without history, end quote. In 1981, the University of Virginia's Carter G. Woodson Institute for African-American and African Studies was named in honor of this same native Virginian, Carter Godwin Woodson. The celebration of Black History Month was first officially recognized by President Gerald Ford in 1976. There has been a theme for Black History Month each year since 1928. 2022's Black History Month theme is Black Health and Wellness. The themes are selected by the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, an organization founded by Woodson. This focus in 2022 resonates for many in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and acknowledges major disparities in the healthcare system, It additionally acknowledges the legacy of Black scholars and medical practitioners in Western medicine, as well as other ways of knowing throughout the African diaspora. The ASALH states that, quote, over the years, the themes reflect changes in how people of African descent in the United States have viewed themselves, the influence of social movements on racial ideologies, and the aspirations of the Black community, end quote. Today, we are very lucky to speak with someone who has a passion for health advocacy work and who has paved the way for progress in Charlottesville. Myra Anderson is an activist, poet, and in fact, a Charlottesville native. Hello, it's lovely to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. That's so great to hear. We're really excited to speak with you today. First, could I have you introduce yourself to everyone? Well, my name is Myra Anderson, and I'm a Charlottesville native, and my family dates back to seven generations in this area. My six-generation ancestors were enslaved at Monticello, and after that, several of them came to the University of Virginia and were amongst the enslaved laborers. So I have roots all over the city. And I've lived here my whole life. I am a very passionate poet, social justice activist, mental health advocate, just love, love, love people, love life, and just trying to make a meaningful difference so that it seems that things, everything is obtainable for all people. So that's kind of like I think my purpose, but mental health is what I spend a lot of time focusing on and particularly mental health in the African-American community because there is such a disparity. Myra Anderson was a community fellow in residence in 2020. This program is run by the UVA Equity Center, which is part of the Democracy Initiative. 
The program is aimed to address inequities in the Charlottesville area through community-engaged scholarship. The Fellows Program is a short-term professional development opportunity. It is designed for people who have actively worked to reduce racial and socioeconomic inequality in the Charlottesville community. Fellows apply with a specific project that could benefit from access to UVA's resources and support. Myra Anderson was part of the inaugural class of fellows in 2020 through 2021. Her project focused on creating spaces specifically for Black Americans in Charlottesville to have conversations about and receive treatment for mental health struggles. Yeah, so I was on the first cohort of fellows, and this would have been in 2020. And again, because I'm so passionate about mental health, the project that I submitted to become a fellow had to do with mental health. And initially, the project was called Queen's Cuts and Conversations. And the idea was to take mental health into the beauty salon, since that's already an established place where African-American women or men in the barbershop feel comfortable and talk freely. So instead of the idea of coming into like a, a treat, a mental, a traditional mental health treatment center, the idea was to take mental health into the community and into spaces that people already um, feel comfortable. So after the pandemic hit, I noticed that there seems to be an uptick of, of just mental health, mental health struggles in the community. And while it was mainstream, what I was noticing specifically was in the African-American community. In a lot of ways, it was off the charts. And it doesn't always show up like someone going into a, a counselor's office and saying, hey, I want therapy. But I was seeing other ways in the community that this was showing up. So I at that point, got permission to try to shift my project from this idea of just being a community based in this hair salon to actually creating a, a, a mental health center that was focused on specifically African-American mental health. Because in addition to, like I said, the cultural barriers of African-Americans not wanting to traditionally engage in mental health for so many reasons, there were also structural and systemic reasons that historically to present day was also not, not making a lot of people want to engage. So I was thinking if there was such a center that was able to offer culturally competent services, and if we could combat some of that stigma, so it's, it's more like a place that you can come to just unpack and it didn't seem like, you know, so stigmatizing, then perhaps more people would want to engage in mental health. Now, when I switched my project, I didn't realize that I was going on something, I had this idea that I was on a small scale going into hair salons to something that would actually take much longer than a fellow's year to develop. So I think for me, what I spent the majority of the year, and it was actually a year and a half because we got extended once the pandemic hit and a lot of things we weren't able to access things so the fellows year was extended until the end of 2021 but what i spent majority of the year doing is i think is laying the infrastructure for the center which i hope to call the sankofa center because sankofa is a word that talks about well it's a concept that talks about in order to move forward, we have to know, we have to know our roots, we have to know where we're coming from. And when you think about that in the context of mental health, a lot of the stigma and a lot of the stereotypes around mental health in the African-American community are rooted 
in the way that African-Americans were treated when they were enslaved and before that. So I was thinking with the whole idea, the name Sankofa is, in order to be here, we have to understand the past. Um, at this point, I'm still fully, fully, fully pursuing this Sankofa Center and I won't rest until it, 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 I don't care if it just starts as in a one room place, but I think you have to start somewhere and I'm very much committed to, to making that happen. According to Mental Health America, Black Americans often face greater barriers to getting treatment for mental health struggles. Anderson mentioned that Black Americans are more likely to have mental health issues, yet less likely to seek help. Mental Health America reports a few statistics. 13.4% of the U.S. population identifies as Black or African American. Of those, over 16% reported having a mental illness in the past year. Of that 16%, 22.4% reported a serious mental illness over the past year. According to a 2013 study in the journal Nursing Research, African Americans are often concerned about stigma when seeking help with mental health, which influences common coping behaviors within Black communities in America. It was found that participants in this study were less open to acknowledging psychological struggles, but were somewhat open to seeking mental health services. Anderson also mentioned that there is a lack of culturally competent mental health professionals. This is true nationwide and in the Charlottesville community. A study from the American Psychological Association conducted in 2017 concluded that, quote, because less than 2% of American Psychological Association members are Black or African American, some may worry that mental health care practitioners are not culturally competent enough to treat their specific issues, end quote. According to Georgetown University's Health Policy Institute, cultural competence is defined as the ability of providers and organizations to effectively deliver health care services that meet the social, cultural, and linguistic needs of patients. A culturally competent health care system can help improve health outcomes and quality of care and can contribute to the elimination of racial and ethnic health disparities. Anderson herself has a personal connection to this work. She shared her experiences growing up leading to her passion today. Well, what got me interested in it is lived experience. Um, I have suffered from depression myself, am journey and taking that journey with depression probably since I was a teenager. And I learned very early on that it seemed that there were like some cultural barriers as well as mainstream barriers that was making it not very conducive to me uh, getting well and healing. So as I got older, I began to look at um, in greater context as to some of those things. And it was only then that I understood that these barriers aren't just things that I'm facing as an individual, like on a micro level, but it's macro and it's some it's systems. And so from that perspective, I not only became passionate in it, um, because I, I wanted to create more spaces for people like me so that they could feel affirmed and validated. And if they had um, anything, any type of mental struggle, that their the environment was conducive to them wanting to seek help and that help was helpful. In addition to her work in advocating for expanded mental health services, she has also advocated for the recognition of her ancestors who were enslaved at Monticello and the university. As I said, you know, my ancestors were enslaved at UVA and they were amongst the enslaved laborers. So if you think, I mean, when I became a fellow at first, I had chills. One of my ancestors, Grimston Hearn, he actually laid the stone foundation for the rotunda, for the steps of the rotunda. And if I actually think about the, I, th this whole notion that 
they were enslaved there. They, they weren't dignified. They were subjected to the absolute worst treatment from every account that I read. And here I am six generations later at the same university that they were enslaved at. And I'm here and my project is focused on the very people who were not dignified then. Like, I can't tell you how very, very, very powerful it felt to me the first time after I became a fellows and I came um, on grounds to just really, really, really resonate on that. I think one of the benefits that I had because my ancestors were enslaved at Monticello before coming to the university, everything was well documented. So it was already written in several books in several places that these specific ancestors not only uh, went to UVA, but exactly what professors had purchased them, owned them, all of those things. So when I first noticed the first time that I went and visited the wall, that there was only one name up there, and that was Grimston, um, the stone cutter. He was the only one up there. It should have been five more. So it took me 18 months of going back and forth with the university, but I was in a lot of that had to do with the fact that although they had the first names, they had no formal process for how they intended to vet new names. So when I was like, hey, these names were omitted, they had no formal process of how they were going to review and accept names. So a big part of that time had to do with them getting things lined up on their side. They were never in doubt that the names should be up there and it was unclear as to why they weren't. But even that was a powerful moment. I was thinking, you know what? My ancestors, they made their mark on this university by helping to build it from the ground up. And here I come six generations later and make my mark on that same history by making sure that those names were up on the wall. So it was a very, um, and it was kind of a bittersweet moment for my family. We were invited to go up there as they unveil the names, but just looking on the memorial um, and looking around and seeing that my ancestors have first names and last names. There are many up there. It just said farmhand, boy, and all of these things. And that just spoke to the indignity of that time. So, you know, I feel proud, very proud that I was able to, to keep pushing forward to make sure that those names were, on, were added to the wall. The Memorial to Enslaved Laborers, located at the university, was set to officially open in April of 2020, but the pandemic pushed that back by a year. Today, it can be seen on grounds, and there are tours which elaborate on the meaning behind the design and the importance of the installment. In learning more about Anderson, we discovered her interest in writing and poetry. We saw that she was looking to potentially write a children's book about that specific experience, so we asked if that was still part of the plan. I've kind of shifted from the children's book idea because I actually, there's a group in town called the New City Arts Initiative. And every year they have a contest called the soup where you're able to pitch an idea. You kind of pitch before a crowd of a hundred, maybe 150 people. And if they accept your idea, 
you're able, you're awarded the um, prize money for your project. And I pitched the idea of a poetry book called Reclaim Roots, which spoke about the experience of me um, wanting, learning about my ancestors and everything. And so I actually won. I'm in the process of writing a poetry book, which should be finished by late spring. And I'm so excited about that. And it's going to talk a little bit about my, uh, all about my ancestors from Monticello to the University of Virginia, my experience when I first, my, my feelings when I first realized I was connected. I mean, I've lived here my whole life. So that means that I've been up to UVA more times than I could count. And as a child, never knew that I had a connection there at all. And so it's it's been very amazing going into the same spaces I've been to my whole life, but but now they kind of take on a new meaning. I also got the opportunity last year to travel to our sister city. Charlottesville has a sister city in Winneba, Ghana, and I was awarded a grant from the Charlottesville Sister City Commission to do a poetry project with a students at a school there, and I'm wrapping that project up here by doing the same thing with students here. I was so blessed to have that opportunity as well. I really, I consider myself a writer, a poet, so many things, but I think with poetry, it's, it's such a free platform to be able to really express yourself in ways that that may flow with tr traditional poetry or may not. So I've, I've really used it as a platform to really reflect on just all my thoughts and all my feelings about the whole, whole, whole last three years of really coming to know more about my ancestors than I've known my whole life. Well, first off, congrats. That's Thank really you. exciting. I'm <laughs> curious what uh, what your answer would be to that question because I wasn't sure. It was an article that I had read, um, I think published like last oh. August or something. Yes, because initially I was going to write a children. You know, that's still on the table. But when I saw this other opportunity present itself, and since I love to write poetry anyway, I thought, well, maybe this would be a, a easier lead in because it's all my work. No, absolutely. Can we ask how you kind of got into poetry and what kind of sparked that interest in the writing area? I get asked that question a lot. I think I I never like set out to say, oh, well, I think I want to be a poet. I just think that I had a lot to say and I don't, don't think that my voice was heard. And so I started to just write about it because I think for many years I, I wrote poetry and I never really shared it with anyone. I just, I just wrote many, many um, poems and it wasn't probably until maybe seven or eight years ago that I decided to go like to an open mic and, and publicly share my first poem. And I was absolutely terrified. In fact, I, I wanted to back out as people were lining up to go to the stage. And you have to understand when you're in a perspective, I'm, I'm black, I'm a black woman, and usually our voices aren't amplified, they aren't heard. And so when I had this opportunity, I was a bit reluctant at first, just based on lived experience of never feeling like I'd ever been heard. And so I remember I was down at uh, the Jefferson School, the African-American Heritage Center here in Charlottesville. They were hosting the open mic and I, tr I tried to back out and the director looked at me like, we're not doing that today. You better get ready to go on the stage. And you know, when I got up there, I, I, was, I was scared, but I was able to, to speak my truth. And it was the most 
powerful thing ever. And I continued to, and my voice got stronger and I continued to write poetry specifically. I mean, when you think about it, think about some of the most amazing poets of our time. A lot of them were inspired by events because a lot of times when things happen, like when I see things, when I saw things on TV, like, like, like George Floyd, there was no, nothing I could, I felt powerless sitting here in Charlottesville, but what I could do, what I had the power to do was put how that moved me and how that made me feel on paper. And so I continue to do that. And so it's in a sense of, I never set out to be a poet, but I know that my voice wasn't heard. And I felt like this was a way for me to not only express myself, how I felt about so many things, but also in a way that poetically, that other people would be able to resonate with. While Anderson shared with us her professional accomplishments and goals across various fields, we were interested to learn what makes Myra, Myra. Myra is a very, I'm very, very funny. I'm a family oriented person. I love to travel. I love good food. I love good food from all cultures. I'm the person who's usually willing um, to try anything. And you know, it wasn't until I was able to go on a trip to Ghana, because that was my first time actually out of the country that I realized, wow, there is a way of existing outside of what we know here in the US. And after that, I've became so much very committed to not only traveling, but understanding that there is a world beyond the world that we have here. And so I, I love to travel. I love to spend time with my family. I love sitting down and talking to the elders and hearing stories about a long time ago, or even getting words of wisdom. Um, I'm a giver. I'm a person who's always putting projects. If you were like, Google my name, community projects, a whole bunch of stuff will pop up because I really like helping people. And it's not helping helping people, especially those who don't often get thought of. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. It was so wonderful to talk to you and to hear all of the work that you've done. I will be looking out for Reclaim Roots and I will be yes. purchasing a copy when that comes out. Um, <laughs> and I'm excited to see everything else that you do. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, have a good one. You as well. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. We're very lucky to have had the opportunity to speak with Myra Anderson about her advocacy, her efforts, and her accomplishments. I remember one of the questions I was curious to ask was how she created the names for her various projects, but learning more about her love for poetry and writing clarifies that. Yeah, I really am impressed by her passion for her projects and her contributions to the community with those projects have truly been prolific. Ooh, nice vocab word. If there's ever an eight-letter wordle released, I'll be sure to use that one. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, I'm excited to get a copy of Reclaim Roots. It's a must-read for me. Oh, absolutely. This conversation with Anderson is also another reminder of the history of the grounds we walk on and all the amazing work being done in Charlottesville. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been On the Record, a podcast by the Cavalier Daily. This podcast was written, produced, edited, and hosted by Grace Fluerty and Ariana Aronson.